Welcome to Leader Spotlight. On this podcast, we bring you the stories of leaders, their personal journeys, and put a spotlight on the inspiring things they are doing in their organizations. Today, we are talking to Scott Klazowski, so I'm excited that we have finally been able to get him on the podcast. I am Annette Klazowski. I'm your host, and I am an executive coach, an entrepreneur. I'm a crazy dog person, health and fitness junkie, and um, a lot of other things. I'm trying to get eight hobbies that I have. So I, I'm a beginning gardener, so, and I mean very beginning, but, but that's my goal. I read where you need to have several hobbies in order to retire. And as we sit here in this um, pandemic for the coronavirus, I'm and we're all sheltering in, I'm learning that uh, why those eight hobbies might be important when you decide to, to retire. But Annie, we're here with Annie Brown. Annie's the producer and co-host. Um, she's a marketing and social media guru. She's very creative. And uh, Annie, how are you? I know you're sheltering in too. So how are things in San Diego? San Diego's pretty good. Uh, beaches are are very empty, which is super weird. But uh, you know, happy to be here. And by here, I mean in my home, as required by law. Um, it's actually I, I find it kind of nice to be told to stay at home and cancel all my plans. I'm naturally a bit of an introvert. So this is like, okay, officer, I'll eat ice cream every day from now on. Thank you for maintaining law and order. So, you know, I'm an extrovert, so it's killing me. I'm (laughs) having to do my uh, coffee hours and happy social zoom meetings. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to do, we'll have to do, um, uh, some sort of social social event Zoom because as long as I can do social events in my pajamas, I'm I'm fine with that. So both Annette and I realize that podcasts are an important part of maintaining and uh, building what we like to call rivers of information, um, and that's the streamlining of information into one's knowledge growth using a variety of informational sources. And so this is especially dur- important during this time where you know you might have a little little extra downtime, uh, even if it's just, you know, no longer needing to commute. Um, and we're glad to be a part of educating and inspiring our listeners, especially during this uncertain time. As always, I wanted to read a review from one of our listeners. Whole Self Systems on Instagram says, this is so wonderful and important for all of us to hear each other's stories. So thank you, Whole Self Systems. Um, If you like this episode, please take a moment to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, or you can comment on uh, Instagram at Leader Spotlight. And as a reminder, be sure to leave your name, where you are listening from, and your company name, and we'll be sure to give you a shout out at the beginning of the show because we know businesses are struggling right now, so let's get you a a little bit of airtime. On today's episode, we are talking with Scott Klozowski. He is the founder of Future Point of View. He's a speaker and an author and a closet crazy dog dad, I happen to know. So I have a privilege of working side by side with Scott and have also seen his story unfold over the years. So welcome, Scott. Thank you for being on my podcast. Thank you, Annette. I appreciate you having me on. Well, I want to start with you because the Leader Spotlight is all about the story behind the leader. So I really want to start back where you were working in a warehouse and you were dreaming of what you wanted to be when you grew up and kind of how did you navigate to co-founding Future Point of View? 
Well, you know, I thought a lot about this uh, when you asked me to do this about a leader's journey and uh, what, what the journey was for me. Uh, in last year, I actually did an exercise where I sat down and I wrote, what were the major things that happened in my life that caused me to be where I am? And so I actually had a head start on this. And uh, I can tell you that, that uh, I got to thinking about it when I was writing down notes that there's three models for being a leader. There's, uh, if you think about the biblical model, there's David, which was a born leader. Uh, you had Moses, who was a regretful leader, uh, didn't want to really lead. And then you had Ruth, who was a leader by circumstance. And I was like, I thought, well, what was I? So go back to those days of me being in a warehouse or me being a teenager uh, which kind of leader was I? Uh, and I was not a David leader. I was not a born leader. So uh, I, I realized that I was more of a leader by circumstance. So uh, right before that time, um, I was made the captain of the soccer team because I was the best soccer player, but I was never a leader. I mean, I had never been a leader uh, up until that time. And that was the first time ever that somebody made me be a leader. And then I had to actually lead the team as a captain, and that was completely new. Uh, you know, when I got to the warehouse, as you mentioned, uh, I was just a warehouse worker, and uh, but I worked hard and I did a good job, and they moved me up. And within a couple years, a person above me uh, retired, and so they promoted me, and then I was in charge of five people. And once again, I didn't ask necessarily for that. Uh, so I was once again a leader, and that's where it started, uh, was me not being a born leader, I think, uh, just being a leader by circumstance. It all changed after that, but but that was the beginning, and I, I think it was important for me to know that. Sometimes it's important for you all to know that, that not everybody's a David born leader. Yeah, I, I think very few are, and I think it's very common that the most successful person in a role gets promoted to management. So the best salesperson then becomes sales manager. And, and, and as you know, those skills are so different to lead than they are to do the um, individual contributor role. So when, when you were, so when you were in the warehouse and you were promoted, um, what started going on for you? I mean, were you satisfied there? I mean, how did you, start navigating that journey from there? No, I was never satisfied there. And uh, I think I, I think now that might be something I was born with, is uh, never being satisfied uh, with where I am or that anything is good enough. And so we used to joke that, that I'm a progress junkie. You know, I, I, every day <laughs> yes. I wake up and I have to make progress at things. It could be that the garage is a little cleaner. Uh, it could be I learned something, uh, but it's not a good day unless I made progress somewhere. So I think, you know, back in those days, uh, you know, it wasn't like I got promoted, you know, at 21 years old or whatever to be head of a warehouse. And then I thought, wow, I've arrived. You know, for me, that was just another step in a journey that I had no idea where I was going to go. But uh, I guessed that there would be more steps. So how did you get into technology? Uh, that is, that was an odd one because 
I did not grow up using computers or anything in high school, but again, there weren't many back then. But but my dad was a programmer for Boeing, so I was aware of what programming was. And of course, he was programming on mainframes, but I never had any interest in it when he was doing it. Uh, but at about 19 years old, I, I started thinking about, okay, you know, uh, do I want to work in a warehouse the rest of my life? And I had started to think about uh, that technology, computers, PCs seem to be the way of the future. And so I started thinking about the fact that uh, I need to figure out a way to move into technology. Okay. And what was that step like for you? Uh, you know, it was uh, just a bit of luck uh, in, a, in a bit of direction like things always are. The company that I worked for uh, decided to start a uh, computer department, and uh, they were looking to hire people from within to go into the computer department. And uh, I had you know, moved up a little bit from the warehouse to actually going out and doing some sales. And uh, so I was young. And I was always willing to learn. And so they put me as the bottom guy in their new computer department. Okay. So you were selling computers. Yeah. Were they big boxes? Were they big boxes? Yeah, they were big big computers (laughs) at that time. You know, I was selling them, but more than that, I was the one that was having to set them up, uh, do some programming, uh, build them, because at that that time you had to put your own memory and you you had to add things to your machines yourself. Uh, and I, I was kind of an engineering kind of person just from my dad, I suppose. And so I very quickly over a couple of years learned how to program in basic and debase and learned how to build computers and how to connect them to mainframes. And I would help sell them. Okay. So then what were kind of walk us through that? Because I know it's kind of an interesting story from there to to where you kind of went out on your own. Oh, it all gets weird from there. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So uh, my boss who ran the computer department, uh, he, he was a, he was a good guy, but uh, the boss above him wanted to start selling IBM computers. And uh, we, my boss was not having any luck at all getting an IBM dealership. Uh, And so I started working on it and I found a way that we could get an IBM dealership. And so my boss's boss said to me, well, look, if you can get an IBM dealership, I'll let you run the department. And I thought, well, that's great because, again, I'm always upwardly mobile, you know, if I have a chance. Well, long and short, I got the IBM dealership. Uh, It was very early in IBM doing that kind of thing. So it was difficult to get and we got it. I didn't realize that the outcome of that was going to be that they would fire my boss, but they did. They fired him, let him go, and gave me his job. And so that really launched everything else about me being a leader because uh, that stopped the whole reluctant leader thing. And from that point forward, leadership was always a choice for me. So I ran that computer department for a couple of years, built it up until it was half of the sales of the whole organization. Uh, then I bought that computer department away, uh, and that was the first company that I ever built. And that was the changeover for me from being kind of, you know, leader by circumstance to chosen. You know, I chose the leadership from that point forward, which then starts you on a very different journey. You know, when you choose to be an entrepreneur, you choose to be a leader. Uh, it's different than when you're just thrust into a leadership role. Yeah. So I work with a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and and people at all different stages of a company. What what were some lessons you learned building businesses? 
kind of in the beginning because you've built several. Wow. Uh, I learned that uh, you really needed to listen to experts and I was not good at that at first. And so that was one of the first really good lessons I learned is I didn't listen to the CPA, you know, that I would have hired or I wouldn't listen to the lawyer that I had hired. Uh, and so I was very, I guess you could say arrogant. I was very sure of myself, you know, in my 20s. Uh, that I was an expert at entrepreneurism. And so, uh, you know, I, I made some decisions and grew the company really fast. My first company ever, I grew very quickly. Uh, but the whole time I was getting warned, you know, by experts around me um, about what I was doing and the risks I was taking. Uh, and I didn't listen. And eventually uh, those risks bit me. Uh, and I learned the first and hard lesson was you're not as smart as you think you are, and you really need to, to listen to experts around you. And so when you learned a hard lesson, what, what, what was that like when you walk through that? Because I know sometimes people give up. Um, sometimes people um, internalize that and, and never recover or rebound to something different. Um, so what made it different? Because you, you've built a lot of technology companies. Um, you've gone in and you've turned companies around. You've built companies. Um, you're, you're kind of a forward thinker. And, and you know now you speak and write. But, but what made you when you were in that kind of hard, when you got bit, you know, when you were down, what, what helped you kind of rebound from that? You know what the difference is when you're telling stories uh, to your wife as opposed to a, a regular <laughs> interviewer? It's like having an, an automatic fact checker sitting right in front of you, I realize. I, I, everything I say now, I have to tell you the exact truth. You do. Okay. You do. You, you can't uh, spin it. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me, let, me, let me answer your question. Let me set the stage for everybody out there. Uh I had built this company up to doing about 40 million a year in uh, technology sales. Uh, and uh, we got overextended and then we ran into some trouble with the uh, accounts receivable funding company and uh, with a franchisor. Uh, and uh, all at once, uh, what I had built that was flying high uh, came crashing down because they sued me uh, and called the notes because uh, we had built the company on a lot of debt. Uh, and so, you know, the day comes when a process server comes to my door and hands me, uh, you know, the notice that I've been sued for some millions of dollars and they are forcing us into bankruptcy uh, and, and wanting to force me into bankruptcy personally. And, you uh, it's it is difficult to rebound uh, from things like that, uh, and there are times when people will say, "What's the best thing you ever did in your career?" You know, all the companies you started. What's the best thing you ever did? If I give an honest answer to that, sometimes I really feel like the best thing I ever did was what I did for the two years after that process server showed up. Two years after I was forced into Chapter Sevens and Chapter Elevens because. Uh, I was still pretty young, you know, at that time, and it was brutal to not only have my dream get crushed very publicly, by the way, you know, when you have to file bankruptcies, everybody knows it. It's a very public thing. Your employees leave you, you know, you only have a few of them left. Uh, everybody who thought you were, you know, in my case, thought I was a whiz kid now knows you're not a whiz kid anymore. Uh, 
And it's very difficult to pick yourself back up off the floor. And I remember, I, I remember that time, like it's yesterday. I remember what it was like getting up in the morning uh, and every day trying to fight to get out of that mess. And I, uh, I spent two years, and I'll spare you all the details, but I spent two years uh, fighting in court against the two big multi-billion dollar companies that had sued me and were trying to drive me out of business. And understand, they were trying to do the same thing to about 20 other people like me. Uh, and out of out of those 20, by the end of the two years, I was the only one who had, didn't have to file bankruptcy personally and who fought off the two big companies. And I ended up making them settle out of court. I countersued them, made them settle out of court with me. Uh, I never had to file bankruptcy personally, as I mentioned, was able to uh, chapter seven, some of my companies, chapter 11, the rest sold what was left and was able to get out of that by probably uh, almost the end of three years. Some of the best work I ever did, and I don't just mean working through a bankruptcy, which by the way, there's just no playbook. There is no playbook for how you go through bankruptcies like that, uh, especially not when you're young, like I was. Uh, but when I say it's some of the best work, it also is just some of the best work I did personally as a leader, because I, the thing that's so tough about getting a back up off the floor like that, there's no glory in that. I mean, when I did that well, there was nobody clapping. Right? <laughs> yeah. There was nobody that was going, boy, that was fantastic work you just did there. You know, that was leadership uh, of saving my family from huge amounts of debt, you know, saving me from the stigma of having a bankruptcy all my life, you know, saving some employees' jobs, you know, that that, that was leadership in a way that nobody sees it much, nobody praises you a whole lot, and so... You know, that 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 was an experience that absolutely probably shaped me uh, to this day. Yeah, that you probably experienced when they say it's lonely at the top. Sometimes um, you really find out who who stands beside you in times like that when you're digging. Yeah, yeah, no, no question. Uh, there were people who were wonderfully loyal. I mean, wonderfully loyal. Uh, and then there were people that just stabbed me in the back that I never would have thought. And the weirdest thing was, you know, line up 30 people that were around me. If I would have picked 15 loyal and 15 not loyal, I would have been completely wrong. It was crazy. That's interesting. It was crazy who stayed loyal that I never would have thought of. And then who just bailed, you know, that I would have sworn, you know, would have been loyal. Uh, but, you know, it's a good lesson in human nature. You know, it really is. Yeah. Okay. So you fight, you get through that. What's your next step to go get a job work uh, for somebody else? No, <laughs> no. And the next step actually was just at the complete other end of the spectrum of cool. So I went right from there to uh, uh, building a, a company in the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, that's a long story about how that happened, but I wanted to try something international, and I had already started that uh, before all the bankruptcies and the battles, and so uh, I ended up uh, I ended up building one of the first Soviet American joint ventures. Uh, certainly, the, it was the first one in technology, and I had partners like Gary Kasparov, the world chess champion, and uh, it was just a crazy, um, you know, three, four year ride of putting together a technology company where we imported Soviet software technology to the West, 
including a, a million dollar license to Apple, by the way, uh, and then ended up selling that to uh, some venture capital uh, folks. And so uh, it just it's something you could write movies about. And then that one ended up in a lot on a lot more positive note right, than the first one that I built. I've tried as I get older, become more introspective about what does drive me. I mean, why do I behave the way that I do? Why do I choose to do the things that I do? Uh, and it's a combination of things. I mean, certainly that I love to make progress thing. Uh, I don't like to waste time. I really have a sense that we only have so much time on earth. And uh, I really don't want to waste time. I don't want to waste a day. Uh, I don't want to waste a week. Uh, I, I have a real sense that I could die at any moment. Uh, I don't want to have any regrets uh, that I didn't try to do things. I don't want to have any regrets that I wasted time. Uh, and, and honestly, every day that goes by, I feel that more. Like the runway gets shorter all the time. And so if I'm going to accomplish something, then let's get it done. Like, let's just get it accomplished now. I don't know how much time I have left to get things accomplished. Uh, and so I, I think those things mix in. But I also think that there's a little bit of the whole time I was growing up, my mother told me, you could be anything you want. You could do anything you want. You know, I had one of those mothers who said that all the time to me. And I believed it. I mean, I believed that, that I could accomplish great things or I could accomplish anything and it doesn't matter if I do or not. It matters if I try. And that's the way I feel. If, if I built three companies and two fail, that's okay. You know, it's okay. Uh, you know, I try. And I just want that peace that when I die, I could be on a rocking chair thinking about my life and say, yeah, I left it all on the field. Like, I, I try. I don't, again, I don't really care if I'm massively successful. I just want to be able to look in the mirror and say, I did my best. I tried. I left it all out there. That's good enough for me. So what have you learned when you look back? So, you know, if there's entrepreneurs that are struggling right now or kind of in the grind, um, what could they learn from lessons from your path? I, I have such sensitivity for anybody who starts a business or is an entrepreneur, you know, or anybody who leads and has a tough time having to lead, you know, because I've been there. I have, I have empathy, not sympathy uh, for people who are in that situation. You know, for any of you who are who are entrepreneurs, you know, we always say being an entrepreneur is like bull riding or rugby. It is not golf. Uh, it, it is a sport that no matter how well you do it, win or lose as an entrepreneur, you're going to get hurt. Uh, again, you ride a bull, you can ride eight seconds or 10 seconds, you're going to get hurt. So I, I think, you know, entrepreneurism and, and leading in general is an arena. And it's an arena that we choose to step into. And you learn a lot about yourself when you step into that arena. You know, what I, what I would hope people would learn from me is things like you get knocked down and you get back up. I mean, that was my first company, got destroyed. It was brutal. Three years of digging out uh, to be able to come back and build five more, you know, and if I would have quit on the first one, there wouldn't have been a second, third, fourth one. So I, I hope people take away things like get up. You know, I hope people take away things like you've got to make progress every day. You can never Never be happy, never be satisfied with where you are as a leader or where your company is. Uh, there's always something else that can be improved. Uh, there is only one standard to shoot for, and that's world class. I mean, that's the only standard to shoot for. Anything else is below us. 
as leaders. And so those are, those are the kinds of things I hope people would see in me and I would hope they would take away. I remember you, uh, and you've really always been on the forefront uh, leading with technology. So, you know, before really there were websites, you had a digital, uh, Avant Digital, I think is the name of the company. So you were building CD-ROMs and websites um, that were pretty much static. And then it was webcast. So it was kind of the YouTube of today, but it was way before that time. And then, you know, it's like you've, you've moved into spaces that, that really the, the market's not even there. So where does that come from? Where does that vision and, you know, cause you know, some people are opening car washes or storage units and, you know, you're creating products and services and things in spaces that really don't exist. Oh, I'm going to give you an answer to this question that will probably surprise you. Uh, I've wondered the same thing. You know, why, why is it that I got good at looking into the future and uh, accurate at looking into the future? Why is it that I started building companies that were, you know, future looking as opposed to, you know, how can I just make money? Uh, I'll tell you the reason why I think. When I was growing up, uh, our home life was not great. Uh, and my dad had MS and uh, was not a great patient and died, you know, young. And it was it was pretty tough uh, growing up. And I think a lot of the way that I survived uh, growing up was I just lived in the future. I mean, I, I just lived in what it will be like someday because I, I couldn't deal with living it the way it was. And I, I really think for many years, let's just say, you know, 10 years of being young, uh, it was painful. It was not fun every day coming home. I mean, you know, it just, there were not that many fun days. And I think all I did was thinking about, man, when I'm in my 20s, when I leave home, when I can be on my own, right, it'll all be okay then. And I think that that really taught me and conditioned me to want to live in the future. And I think I got out of of uh, Cleveland. You know, I got out of where I grew up. And then as soon as I got into business, that's, as you know, as you've heard now, that's when I decided, oh, I ought to get into computers. Uh, all I could think about was where do I need to be in five years or seven years so I could be happier than I am today? Because I had spent years thinking that thought. Where could I be that I would be happier than today? And I don't think it's ever left me now. You know, I mean, I, I always now try to look into the future. I mean, now, it, it, you know, at my age, you're younger than me, but I'm 57. I mean, now I already start thinking about what will retirement look like? And it's not that I can't wait to be retired. It's that I just say, oh, you know, how can I make retirement be fantastic, you know? I'm always trying to paint that picture of how five years from now or seven years from now, can I be painting a picture that makes me happy, you know, or makes me feel more comfortable. So I think that's why it happened because it's not a God gift. I, I promise you, God did not say, Hey, I'm going to give this guy vision and make him really an accurate future thinker. I don't think that is the way it went down. I, I just think growing up, it was too painful to live in the present. And I just learned to live in a future that hadn't happened yet. So you built a lot of companies and um, you did a turnaround. You did go kind of walk into somebody else's company oh, and 
Lord. Yes. Help turn around. And then after that, you went out on your own and you really started just speaking. And as you were speaking and teaching, you were asked to consult. And that's really how your consulting practice um, kind of really was birthed. So talk a little bit about just moving into that realm of speaking and what that was like, um, because that was di- that was different. So it is amazing the amount of research you have done. Uh, rarely, rarely do I get interviewed where people know so much about my background. In your closet, you're being a closet crazy dog person. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Extensive research. You know, what I told you before about being the the leader by happenstance, speaking is a perfect example. You know, I I was building technology companies and I started getting asked by companies and universities if I would explain something like the internet to them. You know, or when I went to the Soviet Union and did work, I would get called by the Rotary Club and they'd say, hey, we heard you're over in the Soviet Union. Would you, you know, give a talk about it? And so I started getting asked to give these speeches and I started doing it. I I was not good at it. Uh, I was not a great speaker at all. I was scared to death, you know, to get up and do this kind of thing. Uh, You know, over time, like anything else, you learn, you know, and uh, I learned to be a speaker. And then I grew to love being a speaker uh, because I loved helping people. Uh, And you're right. You know, at that time, I I did a turnaround and uh, that's a whole discussion in itself is what it's like doing a turnaround versus building your own company. I mean, I'm glad I did it, but, you know, again, in this world of rugby or, uh, you know, sports where you always get injured and, you know, a turnaround is a sport. You always get injured. It's hard. I had to lay off all kinds of people and it's brutal. Uh, but anyway, uh, after that three year stint, uh, I was really starting to speak more and more and, uh, you know, just by luck, you know, ended up uh, auditioning basically for a large speakers bureau and ended up uh, being put out to give speeches and be paid, which was the craziest thing I'd ever seen, that people would pay me so much money to go give a speech. Uh, you know, it, So anyway, it, reluctantly, I fell into that and again, wasn't good at it, uh, which is, I think is important for people to know, you know, not a born speaker either. Uh, but I got into speaking, and then, yes, as I spoke and talked about the future and where technology was going, I got more and more popular on the speaker circuit, and then that led to writing books because I had more I wanted to say in long form, and then that led, both of those things led to executives asking if I would do consulting work for them. Well, as we sit here uh, our world, our entire world is really kind of in a difficult time with the coronavirus. And as I think about your skill of really being visionary and knowing where technology is going and how it's going to impact society and just the things you speak on and write about, um, you know, we are experiencing abrupt adaptation right now. So, that's the workplace, it's an education, it's home life, it's personally, I mean, it was really abrupt and people found themselves pivoting, turning, trying to, you know, really grasp, well, this is your strength. I mean, this is what you're really, really great at. So talk a little bit about kind of what you see, where things are going to go, what's your advice to, to businesses, to leaders, you know, kind of give us some of your vision of 
you know, what we're going to face and um, you have such a great outlook on it? Well, first of all, th this is a disruptive black swan event, right? If you're familiar with that book, I mean, this is a black swan event. You know, you, you although we knew a pandemic could you know, happen possibly, nobody planned necessarily for this. Uh, you know, so this is a bit of a shock to everybody, very disruptive for sure. Uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I think you asked two different things. I'll, I'll answer those two different things. You know, for, for me personally, uh, when something like this happens, I, I immediately go, as a business person, I go into, all right, what's everything we can do that's positive mode? Uh, I don't go into fear. I don't go into uh, it's a disaster. I don't, I, you know, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about how much revenue we're losing. Uh, you know, I, I don't focus on the negative. I focus on what can we do that it will work and what can we do to help everybody else? It's like, that's it. It's the only two things I, I'm focused on right now. Uh, I have no idea what the rest of the year looks like. And I'm, I, even for a visionary person, I try not to live in that space now. Because when something like this happens, it's a bit triage mode. And we're all in a bit of a triage. Some of you are, you know, are, might have gone through, depending on when you listen to this, more triage than others. Uh, but we're all in triage mode. And, and triage mode for me is what can I find that's positive? What can we do to move things forward? Uh, and... Uh, you know, just accepting that I also need to help other people. And so divide up my time that way. So it was one thing that you asked. I think the other thing that you mentioned was where, where is it going in the future or where do we see things going? You know, the, the wonderful or tragic things about a podcast is I'm going to say something now. And then depending on when you hear this, you're either going to go, this guy is the smartest guy I've heard all day, <laughs> or you're going to go, man, this guy is terrible. He's a terrible visionary. Uh, but, I, I, you know, with that said, glad to record my thoughts. So uh, here's what I think we'll see in the future. Uh, this is the first time as humanity that we've chosen to react to a disease uh, or infectious disease like this. We've had these before, uh, but this is the first time that we have chosen to damage the economy, to go to the lengths that we're going to go to, to try to keep people from dying. Uh, it's arguable whether this uh, virus is worse than other ones we've had. It's, it's arguable. But what is not arguable is we've never reacted this way. Uh, and in some ways, I think it's fantastic. You know, this says a lot for humanity that we are now making a decision that we will put the economy, you know, into a tough state in order to save lives. That says a lot about us, if you really think about it. Uh, and it is not the last time we will ever see this. In fact, now, from now on, we will get better and better at social distancing. That will always be in the dictionary. Uh, we will get much better at sending people home to work for six or eight weeks at a time. Uh, we, will, we will do the lessons learned from this. Uh, when this happens again, and it will, uh, we will have a virus that jumps from an animal to a human again in the future. Uh, when that happens, it will not be the first time we've seen it. And, and instead of muddling through it like we are now, we will get much better at it. So uh, that's certainly something I see in the future. Certainly, uh, now that we will train people to work from home better, that will be more of an option. Uh, that's an easy one. So I think anytime there's a nice storm, or even you have somebody that has a personal reason to work from home, uh, I think we'll be much more efficient and willing to let people work from home. So I think that that will really change HR. It will really change 
uh, teams and talent and how we go get the teams and talent. Uh, I, I think also in the future that we will do a lot of lessons learned the rest of the year on this. And what did it mean to us as human beings? Would we do this again? How can we do it better? Uh, and I think that we will someday look back at, at the, that this is a wonderful step forward for humanity, uh, that we are putting the economy behind lives. And I, I think it's hard for us to see that now, but I think we will see that later. And we will be happy uh, with that decision. It's just one more step forward in being more humane and, uh, you know, being better as humankind. You know, I uh, I lead executive groups in um, a women's president organization in Oklahoma, and an exercise we did in our peer advisory groups were is to for them to think of each constituent group that they serve, whether it's employees, a board, it could be you know um, clients, vendors, whatever it is. But for them to ask themselves, how do you want people to remember you, and how you handled this situation when we get through it? Like you know, fast forward, we're through it. What do you want people to say? And it was very interesting what came out of what their thoughts were because they talked about their leadership and. Um, how they wanted to be perceived as a leader. And and it was interesting to me because I do a lot of facilitation and work on culture and leadership, and it's all the things we say we want to do. But in reality, how we run our companies are completely different. So, you know, we want to have a great culture that people love and, you know, where it's all about the people, but yet we're inflexible to support them having balanced lives and being present for their kids when they need them. And so I really kind of see people, you know, for whatever reason, get, being able to experience that new norm. And because I've heard you say, we've had all these tools, we've had all this ability for a long time to work from home, to be flexible, um, to focus on things differently. Uh, but, you know, we don't, we stay in the same groove that we always have. What, what do you think... Um, what are things for you personally that you think are going to change for good, just in your leadership and, and your perspective? Well, cer- certainly the work from home, uh, you know, this forces you to see how well you can do work from home. So I think, it, you know, it changes for me that I'll have more confidence. Uh, uh, I am doing a lot of video work with people. So uh, I've asked for that for years and a lot of people haven't been willing to do it, but I think, It'll be much easier now that I can uh, have video meetings with people instead of flying there or do speeches over video instead of having to fly there and be there in person. So uh, I, I think, you know, those things will certainly be different for me. You know, at, at a personal level, uh, you, you know this. When this started, I started writing an email called Modern Churchill. And I, I, I remember the morning I sat there saying, why should I write this? No, nah, I don't need to write this. People don't need to hear this from me. And then I just kind of had the message, that, yeah, you, you're meant to write this. And I've been writing it, and it's had a huge response from leaders, you know. And, and I'm mixing Churchill, who I respect for getting through a very difficult time in World War II, huge respect for Churchill, with modern psychology, right, or philosophy, uh, which is why it's called Modern Churchill, uh, you know, I think writing these modern Churchills every day, although, you know, you write these things for other people, they're also, they just reinforce things for me. So every time I write one of these messages, I have to look at myself and say, okay, do I do that? And uh, I, I think that's one way 
through this challenge, uh, even me talking to other people about here's what I think we need to be doing to get through the challenge, I, I listen to what I write. So give so. us an example. And it's a resource we can share with everybody. Um, we're kind of compiling all of your daily emails into one uh, resource. But give, give us an example of something you've written about. Well, if I write about, for instance, emotions being contagious, right? The, the Churchill had to be very careful about the emotions that he showed in public and the emotions he showed on his broadcast, on his radio uh, broadcast that he was doing, uh, because he was trying to be a cheerleader for everybody. And so he never allowed himself to be seen in public as uh, upset, stressed, you know, perturbed. Uh, he always came off as confident. He had a dry sense of humor. Uh, and that is infectious. I mean, it's infectious. And so when I write that, you know, to, in, a, in a modern Churchill to everybody else, uh, then I have to ask myself, okay, well, how am I being infectious? You know, what, how am I showing up for people? Am I a good cheerleader? You know, am I, uh, am I showing confidence? Uh, am I showing a sense of humor? Uh, you know, am I, am I making sure that I show up in the world in a way that's infectious and I would want to infect other people? And am I doing that consciously? You know, so that would be an example is every day when I write something like that, I check it and say, am I doing this? Don't just preach to people and then don't follow your preaching. Yeah, yeah, it's been very well received. Uh, what else are you doing with Future Point of View that's pivoting <clears throat> kind of for the time we're in and just kind of to serve the clients you have? You know, I think one of the coolest things that, that we did was uh, we put together a one-hour training session on how to lead home-based teams. So we had done some work for a big company some years ago uh, in this exact area, and we kind of dusted off that content and created a uh, a, a couple documents that explain 10 best practices for leading home-based teams. We turned it into a one-hour, uh, pretty cool video training session. Uh, and we've been running those training sessions about every other day or every day, some weeks, uh, just to help people. We, you know, we're not necessarily always charging for them. We're just running them as a service to try to help people. And so uh, I think that's one of the cool things is you know, saying, hey, at this time, what can we do as future point of view to help the world? And whether we get paid or not to do it, it doesn't matter. Uh, let's just get out there and be seen and provide uh, content that helps people. That's good. Anything else you want to share before we go to my final question? Uh, you know, I, I know so many of you that listen to this, you know, you are leaders or, uh, you know, you're a young leader and you're becoming leaders and uh, you know, this this whole COVID event, again, depending on when you listen to this, it could already be over, but this whole COVID event sure reminds me of how important leadership is. You know, you said managers before, right? There's a difference between managers and leaders. And when things get dark, that's when leaders need to be that light. You know, that's when it's not just about your company strategy and, you know, it's not about revenue. It's about as a leader, can you be a light in the world when the darkness is growing? And I, I would just ask everybody who's listening to this, if you're a leader, just check that, like check that in your spirit. Uh, when things get dark, are you a light? Because if you aren't, it's really difficult to call yourself a leader. I think now you're a manager, but you're just saying you're a leader. Leaders are light when it gets dark, no matter how hard that is. 
And uh, I just hope and pray that all of you do that. All right. So at the end of my interviews, I always ask, who are your four? So as the old saying goes, show me the people closest to you and I'll show you your future. So I kind of pose that to you. Who are your four? Uh, do you leave the room for this part? or No, I'm right here. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh, yeah, honestly, even if you didn't leave the room, I would say you're the first of my four. So uh, when you say the closest and the most influential, uh, you know, I'm the closest to you and you've, you've had for years the most influence on how I think and helping me see places where I'm weak, uh, which is, you know, it's not that isn't always the most fun, but it's so necessary that somebody around you can help you see where your blind spots are. So, you know, I say you're number one on that list as far as influence. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I hate to rank, so I'll just give you three other things. Uh, my mother, you know, who I mentioned before, she's been around for all 57 years and uh, she's made it her personal job to build me and mold me, whether I like it or not. Uh, and she's done a pretty good job of really giving me a lot of ideas and a lot of information in my life to choose from. So she's done a good job of that. Uh, I'm discipled by a, a gentleman who's you know, older than I am. Uh, and he has done a great job for six, seven years, probably at least of discipling me. And so, uh, you know, he brings that older male that I lost when I lost my dad young. So that's been great. Uh, the fourth one, I'm going to have to go a bit unusual probably with you because I, you know, when I think about, okay, there's people around me, but if I were to tell you honestly, what has the most impact on mentoring me, it would be podcasts. And so I, I just, I can't, I hate to break your rules, but I can't, I can't you, give it. Wait, first of all, you do not hate to break the rules. <laughs> no, I, hate to, I hate to break your rules. Oh, okay. Yeah. I love breaking rules. <laughs> Like right, breaking that's your fair. Rules. That is fair. <laughs> so I hate breaking your rules, but I, honestly, I, I couldn't. There are lots of people around me who have influence on me and who have helped me tremendously. I could give you a lot of names, but if I add up seriously on an ongoing basis, what has helped me become more, you know, enlightened or awakened or grow as a person, it is the compilation of a bunch of people who do podcasts. I mean, because I listen to a lot of them, and it's all those people added up right, who record their wisdom that I get to consume for 30, 45 minutes a day. I am so thankful that we have podcasts and so thankful for those people that take the time to do them so that I can consume them and learn and grow. That would probably be my fourth. All right. Well, that's fair. That is fair. So we are going to put together resources. So I know you will invite everybody to attend the updates that you give through Future Point of View. They're on different topics like Citizen Data Science Program. Um, I don't know what some of the other ones are coming up, but the home-based team. You also have a newsletter, a blog. You have a podcast. And then um, I will force you to write down your top podcast, and we'll share that as well with people of, of who you're listening to and who you'd suggest that they listen to. So thank you for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Not that you really had a choice, probably, right? If you could see him now, what you would see is him going, did I, was this a choice? No, it really wasn't. But we appreciate it. And um, I know you're you're sought after and busy. And um, so I appreciate you taking time. Uh, glad to do it. I hope we helped some of you today. 
Annie here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leaders Spotlight. Make sure to visit our website, AnnetteKlazowski.com forward slash Leaders Spotlight, where you can find resources mentioned on this show, as well as past episodes. Subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on Instagram at Leaders Spotlight.